The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, If I didn't get a chance to meet you on the way in, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 18? That text that was just read over us is what we're going to study this morning. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. We've got these hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can grab one of those. Uh, You can open up a phone or a tablet to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'd love for you to have the text in your hand uh, and to follow along if at all possible. Possible. It's on page 241 in those hardback black Bibles. That's where 1 Samuel chapter 18 is. Uh, so as, as you're go, going there, it's been a few weeks, a uh, couple weeks since I've been in the pul- pulpit because uh, I was in Thailand. And so that was a great trip. Just so you know, we're going to do a big review of that trip. So you uh, will be able to ask questions and hear about the trip and see pictures and all that stuff. Uh, but let me quickly give you a recap of where we've been the last couple of weeks because it sets up what we've got to cover today in the text. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 17, Justin, one of our elders, preached on easily, in my opinion, the most famous story in the entire Bible, uh, David and Goliath, right? I I said this a couple weeks ago, David and Goliath is more popular than the Christmas story. Seriously, more people know about David versus Goliath than know about the birth of Jesus, That's how big a deal that story is. And then last week, Joel, one of our pastoral interns, preached on uh, the response, the first response to David killing Goliath, which was uh, King Saul's son named Jonathan and his response to that victory. Now, today in chapter 18, the second half of chapter 18, uh, we are going to see how King Saul responds. So King Saul, king of Israel, he responds differently than Prince Jonathan responds to David, this young shepherd boy who slays a giant. Now, last week, Jonathan's response was interesting. You got to remember, Jonathan is the crown prince. He is the heir to the throne of Israel. But when he saw the spirit of God resting on this guy, David, What he saw in him was this tremendous courage and faith, and he realized that God's favor is now on this guy, David, to be the next king of Israel. Now, the text never tells us how he knows that. He just somehow knows. Jonathan somehow knows because, and here's how we know this, because in in his act, he gave him his sword. Remember this? He gave him his robe off of his back. He gave him his shield and his bow and his belt and his armor. He like essentially takes off all of his princely garb and hands it over to this shepherd boy in an act essentially yielding the throne to him. That's what happened last week. But in our text today, we're going to see that Saul, King Saul, senses the very same thing uh, that, about God's plan for David's eventual kingship uh, that his son Jonathan saw, and yet he expresses his response in a very different way. We're going to study today the, the outworking of what happens with Saul uh, in the sin of envy. Envy is the topic for our sermon today. Envy. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about envy, has a lot to say about envy. Actually, uh, envy is kind of a root sin that flowers up into a number of other sins. There are some synonymous sins you might know of. So envy, yes, but uh, greed, greed is a part of envy, jealousy, and even coveting. They're all kind of like first cousins 
of envy, this idea. Uh, Greed, just so you know, greed is I want more. That's what greed is. I want more. Uh, Jealousy is I want to keep what I have. That's, that's what jealousy is. Coveting is I want the thing that's not mine. It's not I want more. It's not I want the thing that I already have and kind of jealous of it. It's, it's, it's I want what you've got. I want that thing. But envy is deeper than all of these other sins. Envy is a, is a different attitude. It's deeper, okay? It's what's underneath those other sins. This is why envy is actually historically known as one of the seven deadly sins, These are not in the Bible per se, but historically these have been like root sins that bear fruit in other sins in our lives. So envy, envy. Okay, now before we jump into what envy is and look at the text, you might be thinking, well, that's not something I struggle with, so I I can just check out. I I don't struggle with envy, so I can just shut off my brain for the next hour and 17 minutes. No? Is there a football game on you want to watch today? No, it's okay. Before you check out, let's just talk about this for a second. Have you ever watched HGTV? Then you've experienced envy. (laughs) I mean, that's like an envy bomb on on TV, right? Like that's what it goes off in your mind. You ever go to a friend's house and you see their house and you were totally cool with your house? You were totally cool. Like you liked your kitchen and your bathroom and your 10-foot ceilings, but then you saw their 12-foot ceilings, right? And you get back to your house and you're like, I live in a cave. I can't eat off of these countertops. Are you serious? Like that's, that, that's, what, that's envy. That's envy. You ever uh, see a neighbor roll up in a new car? Just roll on up in a new whip and you're like, You don't even want that car, but you don't want him to have that car? You're like, I work harder than him. I would look much better than she does in that whip. Like, what's the deal? That's envy. That's envy. Uh, You ever get a call from a friend, okay, who you're just a little jealous of? You ever get a call from a friend you're just a little jealous of? Like, they're the perfect family. Right, they've got the perfect kids and they send out the perfect Christmas cards on the thick, perfect card stock. You know what I'm talking about? That heavy stuff that costs way more than Walmart prints. They've got all the really good hair. They've got one of those, my child is an honor student bumper stickers on their brand new car that you just got envious about. Remember that? They've got that bumper sticker. You ever get that call from them and they're like, oh, Timmy, little Timmy got suspended from school. And your response is yes. You don't say that. You say, oh, I'm so, we are praying for you and for Timmy. But in your heart, you're like, yes, I hate Timmy. You ever feel that? You ever feel that? That's what goes on in your heart. I hate them and their smug bumper sticker. That's envy, guys. Those things, listen, I know we're joking about it. These are the kinds of things that rattle around in our hearts. If we're honest, and listen, I know it's church. It's no place to be honest. But like, if we're honest, that's where, just kind of ping-pongs in our hearts, in our chests, in our minds, in our lives. So we're going to study Saul and his envious response to David's victory and where it leads him, okay? And, I, and my hope is that this informs us and convicts us and maybe even protects us from some of the same self-destruction that we see in our guy, Saul. So here we go, 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 6, verse 6. As they were coming home, 
when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Verse 7, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Okay. Let's break some of this stuff down because it seems like a pretty straightforward text, but let's break a couple of things down. First, look at verse eight and notice that we find evidence that Saul is now seeing the very same thing that Jonathan saw. Okay, he said, what more can David have but the kingdom? He realizes, uh-oh, my kingdom's at stake here. My kingdom is at stake. And we see at this moment, I think, Saul remembering something that he had said back in chapter 15. I'll put this up on the screen. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has torn the, king, the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That's a harsh statement. But what I think is happening here is Saul is seeing that, in fact, that neighbor who's better than him is David, is this shepherd boy, Jesse's son. He's seeing that God's will is for David to become the next king. And that's the very same thing that Jonathan saw when, we, when he hands over his armor and essentially gives him his allegiance last week. But whereas Jonathan loves David and honors him, Saul does not. Saul's response is the complete opposite, okay? And so it's this envy. Saul begins, and the text says that he gets angry. He gets angry. And this is actually, I think, the first step in envy. Anger. Anger shows up. He gets angry at David's success. That's, that's envy. But then it actually expands. He's not only angry at David, he's angry at the singers. It's like, I can't believe they're singing about that guy. He only killed one, really. Right? He gets angry at the singers, but then more so, his anger is actually towards God here. His anger is towards God because God's the one who said, a neighbor of yours is gonna take your throne. And so I don't think it's too big of a statement to say this. Envy is hating God's will. At its root, envy is hating God's will. It's not wanting the will that God has. Saul sees that it's God's will for David to have the kingdom and he hates it. He hates it and he gets angry. He doesn't want God's will. Envy is an accusation against God. That's what it is. It's, I see how things are. I see how you're making things happen and I don't like it and it's shaking your fist towards the, towards the heavens. That's envy. Envy. You're indicting God. You're saying, God, I see your will here, but I reject it. I'm angered by it. So church, envy is seeing God's will and wanting something else. 
It's wanting what you don't have. It's feeling like what you do have is not enough of what you want. It's feeling that you deserve more. Indeed, that you're owed more by God. God, you're not meeting your end of the bargain here. And envy can start with this discontentment for what God has already given you. And then it quickly can turn into resentment towards others who have what you want. This is envy. Not only do you wish you had what they have, but then you begin to hate them for having the thing that you wish. It's insidious. You see why it's a deadly sin? And so how do we really want to define envy? Well, uh, I think there's actually a pretty decent little, little definition of envy here. If we look at, again at verse eight, this is what he says. He says, they've ascribed to David 10,000s and to me, they've ascribed thousands. And so envy says, I think the definition is this. What about me? I think, that's not like a technical definition, but I think the definition of envy is, what about me? What about mine? And that attitude, that envious attitude, begins to color all that you see, how you live. So for example, in Romans chapter 12, Paul uh, gives this instruction. He gives this commandment to Christians. He says to to Christians, you should rejoice with those who rejoice and you should weep with those who weep. That's a command from God to Christians. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, which means as a loving Christian, you will empathize with people. That's what that means. When they're happy, you're gonna celebrate with them. When things go worse and bad in their life, you're gonna weep with them. You're gonna empathize and engage with them. But envy destroys this. The sin of envy destroys this because in envy, you weep when they rejoice. Right? They get something good. They get that promotion. They get that you know, tax return and you're spending, shelling it out. And so you weep when they're rejoicing, but you rejoice when they weep. I mean, how evil is that? Let's not pretend that we don't all feel these things when something bad happens and they're just getting what they deserve. Envy is something in your heart that when you see other people having success, when they are rejoicing, it's a dagger to you. And when you see things happen that you think, oh, they're getting theirs, man, you just feel a little bit of glee in your spirit. And that's so dark. Don't tell me it's not because I feel it. Envy takes everybody else's situation and it makes them about you. What about me? That's envy. Here's some examples. Uh, if you're single in here and you want to be married, you're, you're single, you want to be married, in envy, it's very difficult to be happy for anybody else at the altar. Anybody want, want to just, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody want to admit that? That they've been at a wedding and they're just like, hmm. It's okay. It's okay. It's envy. It's a, it's, 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 it's a sinful thing, okay? Why can't you be happy for them? Because you want to be married. Because it's what you want. So you just can't rejoice with those who rejoice because it's really hard when you're not. You, at your work, you, you want to get a promotion. 
You want to take that next step up the ladder. And in envy, when other people, even a friend gets a promotion, if you've got envy, it's impossible to rejoice with them. Why? Because listen, I deserve it. I deserve that raise. I deserve that promotion. Why am I the person who's here and they're the person who's there? It's envy. What about me? What about me? See, love rejoices when somebody else rejoices, but envy rejoices or rejoices when they are weeping and weeps when they rejoice. Now, I'm just, now, real quick, I'm not saying that you shouldn't want things. Just wanting things is different than being envious of people. Just wanting, it's okay. It is okay to want to be married. It's okay to want to get a promotion. It's okay even to want to remodel your kitchen or raise your ceilings. Those are okay things. It's okay. But envy is when our want starts to trump God's will. And I just want to say, never underestimate the power of envy. Never underestimate the power of envy. Most of us don't realize the deadly poison that envy is. See, we think with envy that we're just kind of dealing with a little small petty jealousy or something like that. It just comes from, "Ah, I just want a little bit more. So it's just like a little bit of greed, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of coveting, but it's not like dangerous. But the Bible treats envy as one of the most serious sins that we can wander into. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 says this, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. That's graphic. Envy might begin with anger, this feeling that's like opposed to God's will and opposed to love, but it leads somewhere. It says it will make your very bones rot. Envy grows into something. We'll see it in our text. Let's get back to the text. Look at verses 10 and 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. All right. Did you catch those first couple words? The next day. The very next day, following this anger towards the songs and towards the accolades and towards this guy, David, and really towards God's will, he wants my kingdom. The very next day, that harmful spirit who we've seen before rushes back upon Saul. Now, remember, this is why David had been brought into Saul's court in the very first place to deal with this spirit, this harmful spirit from the Lord. He had come to the palace to play the lyre, to make music, to soothe Saul, to help him find relief, which, by the way, he had successfully accomplished. He had done that before and the spirit had left him, but the remedy isn't working anymore. The thing that used to soothe his anger is no longer soothing his anger, and we see our brother Saul moving from just being angry to now becoming aggressive. He moves from anger to aggression. 
He hurled his spear at David to try to pin him to the wall and not just once. Did you catch that? He evaded him twice, two times that very next day. Now, you might say to yourself, why didn't David quit? I mean, that's what I said to myself when I read this. He did this twice. Like I'm thinking if the elders in next, next Monday's elders meeting, if I go into the elders meeting and they literally try to throw a, a pointed object at me and kill me against the wall, I'm out. Like I'll just tender my resignation and walk away. Like I just, I'm, I'm done, right? You would too. If your boss does this on Monday, you're out. You're done. If you're a boss, I do not suggest this. This is not a good method for how to handle employee relations, okay? But David doesn't quit. He doesn't quit. Is that weird? It's weird to me. Why? Well, we have to remember that Saul had a condition. It was widely known amongst his, his uh, inner circle and then amongst David that Saul had this condition of this evil spirit. And so here's my thought. I'll bet David just thought, man, he's in one of those moods today. You'll talk yourself out of a lot of crazy by just saying, oh, he must be in one of his moods. The king must be having one of those bad days. This is actually what I'm here for. I'm supposed to soothe him. Maybe I need to play better. Maybe my music needs to be sweeter, more, more soothing. And I think he chalks it up. This isn't personal. This is, this is Saul's being disturbed here. And so I need to actually, I need to help this guy. I don't need to leave. I don't need to tender my resignation. I need to help this guy. But then note, we as the reader see something that David doesn't see. The, the narrator, the writer tells us that Saul actually had murderous intent towards David. It's different. It's not closed door. It's actually real deal here. And his envy is no longer staying bottled up as anger. His envy is now leaking out into aggression. He's getting aggressive. Now consider these words from, from James, the brother of Jesus. We studied these last year. James chapter three says, listen, if you've got bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That, that, that bitter jealousy, that jeal that, that, that's envy. In other words, this text is teaching us that envy is a root sin that gives rise to many other sins, every vile practice. And now Saul has become aggressive. We're seeing the outworking of envy into other vile sins. Now I'm guessing you're probably not gonna have legit murderous thoughts about the people that you envy. I mean, maybe, all right? And we do counseling here. Uh, we offer that, okay? But like, you're probably not gonna attempt homicide with a spear at somebody that you're like, oh man, he got a new car, okay? So like, we, I hope not, okay? But let's just consider a more robust definition of aggression here. Sometimes we call it being passive aggressive, right? 
Your coworker gets that promotion at work. This coworker that's a friend of yours, you get that promotion and you say, yeah, you're at the water cooler. Yeah, I know Sheila got that promotion. Sorry, Sheila. But I, I just hear she's really struggling in her marriage. Yo, that's, a, that's an aggressive move. That's gossip bubbling out of your envy. Your envy is now giving rise to other vile things. Your friend gets engaged. He puts a ring on it and you're like, well, sure seems like she's settling. That's a sin of bitterness, growing, taking root in your heart. And now it's starting to leak out into your conversation. They don't need my compassion. Just look how big their house is. They don't deserve my friendship. Just, I, I see all the cool pictures of all their trips that they post on Instagram. They're doing just fine. And instead of just feeling angry, it begins to work its way out into aggression in our hearts, in our lives. So it goes from anger to aggression. But there's an insidious last step that we see here with our friend Saul. Let's look at verse 12, 12 through 16. So David evades him twice. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed David from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. It doesn't sound insidious, but this is where things get insidious in this passage. Saul's envy started with this internal anger. What about me? Why are they singing that song? Why aren't they singing about my 10,000s, why are they doing that? What about me? It's this anger internally just simmering and brooding a resistance and a rejection of God's will. And then it just starts to bubble over into some aggression. And you might be able to chalk it up to his mental state, but, but it's certainly, the text makes it clear, he's getting aggressive with this guy, David. But now the text says he becomes afraid. The third step of envy is fear. You think that would be the first step, but it's not. I think it's the third step. Fear, he becomes afraid. Now, fear is an interesting thing in the Bible because there's a good category of fear and there's a bad category of fear. In the Bible, okay, there's a good kind of fear. Like the scriptures will say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there's like good fear. There's knowing the good things to fear. That's a part of being wise. So, so I've taught my daughter this. Every parent in here knows how this goes, okay? Your kids think they know how to parent themselves better than you do. They do. Every child, this is a universal thing. Why can't I play in the street? Why do I have to wear a helmet? Why should I look both ways before I run out in front of traffic, right? And they're always questioning you. They're always engaging in this. And if you're a good parent, when they say, why do I have to look both ways? You grab them by the little hand and you walk them over to the street and you show them that squirrel, that, that flat squirrel right there. And you point to it and you say, you want to be next? 
That's, then play in the street. Look at that. Like, that's, that's good parenting. It's good parenting. It's 101, all right? That, that's good fear. That's good fear. That's fear that leads to wisdom. That's fear that protects you from bad things. There's good fear in the Bible, but there is bad fear as well. And that's what we're seeing Saul have here. See, he's, he's not fearing the Lord at this point. He's not fearing God and becoming wise. No, he's afraid of David because he's rejecting God. You see the difference? This is the fear of man over the fear of God. And church, fear will cause you to do some things, like things that you might not have thought you're capable of doing. Fear will cause that. Fear will cause you to cover things up because you don't want people to see it. Fear will make you go underground with some stuff. Fear will make you deceitful and duplicitous and devious. That's what fear will do. In Saul's fear, he now moves into an underhanded way. Throwing a spear at David is not gonna work. One, because bro's nimble, right? He's like dodging things like the matrix. So that's not working, but it's also way too forward. It's way too forward if he just spears the dude. So he goes underhanded here. He moves in an underhanded way to reduce David's influence and even, I'm guessing, to hopefully kill him. He takes a teenage boy and he promotes him. That's what he does. He makes him a military commander. Now remember, the most important thing for Saul is his kingdom. It's his kingdom. And, and, and we just read that David is becoming immensely popular. So if he just spears that guy, he will actually lose the thing that he wants to keep the most, his kingdom. So he has to go into secret. He has to go underground. And so he moves deceitfully by giving David a promotion. Bro, I don't need you to play music anymore. It's not even working. How about you take a thousand? You become a commander. Do I need to be trained? No, don't worry about it, bro. Shouldn't I go to like West Point or something? Nah, sorry, you're fine. He puts him in charge of a military force. David, by the way, is gonna take this idea and use it against a guy named Uriah in 2 Samuel, where he uses military service to try to cover up his own envy, but we'll get there in like six years, okay? Um, <laughs> but he puts David in charge. Now, here's the problem that Saul didn't anticipate. David keeps winning. The Lord was with him and David keeps coming back from the battles unscathed and the complete opposite thing to what Saul wanted to happen, happens. David becomes more popular, the Lord was with him and Saul becomes more and more isolated. This is the pattern of fear. You think you're dealing with it. You think you're hiding it. You think you shuffle it away into that closet, you close the door and you lock the key. But the problem is it's still there and it will cause you to do things that you never thought yourself capable of. Don't ever go to that closet. You have to cover up your cover up. And you notice in verse 15, once more, it started, this little section started with Saul being afraid of David, but now Saul stands in fearful awe of him. His fear, his being afraid is compounding. 
as he moves into secret. His fear is growing and it's causing him to do some stuff that he might not have otherwise done. Saul, remember, Saul was not a bad guy. But this stuff is getting crazy. So at church, I bring all this up because because fear and then kind of these dubious outworkings of Saul, uh, they're all a direct result of this envy. They all are kind of a byproduct of, of this, what about me? It was in his heart. So remember that James 3 verse, that James 3, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now hear me, if you let envy rot your bones, you will be capable of every vile practice. Things that you today couldn't even imagine yourself being capable of, And when that starts to rot from the inside out, they seem like your only chance of escape. Many of my most regrettable sins can be traced back to anger towards God. God, what about me? And I don't think I'm the only one, but listen, I'll say this, church, I have hidden things. You ever hid things? I got good at it. You probably have too. I've hidden things and I've lied about things and I've said things behind backs and I've, I've hurt people all to cover stuff up that I didn't want getting out. This is that vicious cycle of envy. It's far more than just petty jealousy. Envy is a deadly poison. Do not underestimate it. So the question then for us, church, is how do we stop envy? Like as we apply this, how do we stop this? How do we take envy out of our lives? How do we deal with this at the root so that it doesn't grow from anger to aggression to fear? How do we do this? Well, I think the answer is not exactly what we'd expect. Because it does you no good for me to just be like, stop being envious. This is a deadly sin that is corrupting at our core. And it's not just a matter of white knuckling and saying, I'm not going to envy anymore. You just, that's a futile effort. So how do we deal with this? Well, we deal with this by understanding that envy has a core. Like think of it like a peach. Envy is the fleshy, fruity thing, but there's a core, there's a pit to it, and the core of envy is a misunderstanding of the gospel. Let me explain this. If you look at your life and you say to yourself, I deserve better than what I'm getting. If you look at your life and you say, I have worked very hard, I've tried really hard, God is unfair, my parents are unfair, my school is unfair, my job is unfair, the world is unfair, I should be higher, I should be in a better position, I deserve better. If you look at yourself and that's the narrative that goes on in your head, that perspective only comes if you don't fully understand the gospel. And I don't mean like cognitively understand the gospel, like in your head. I don't mean you, you, you don't understand like how to explain the gospel. I mean, you don't understand it in your heart. You don't, you don't, you don't in your guts, in your inner being. Maybe we'll call that like experiential understanding. Like you can get it, but you don't get it. So what do I mean by not fully understanding the gospel? Well, here's the gospel. Jesus comes to earth. 
lives a perfect life. Perfect, no sin. Dies a terrible death. Rises from the grave, ascends to the Father. And what does he say? Well, in John chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says essentially this, Father, I want them, all of these people, to have the things that they don't deserve. I want them to have what I deserve. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the total opposite of envy. Jesus says, I did it all. I achieved it all. I paid for it all, and now I want them to have what I deserve. It's the complete opposite of envy. I want them to have your love. Yeah, they don't deserve it. I want them to be adopted into my family. No, no, they have not earned that. I want them to share in my inheritance. They don't deserve that. I want to rejoice as they rejoice, and I know they don't deserve it. The Bible calls this grace. Grace is the antithesis of envy. It's grace. And so I'll put it like this. Jesus loves seeing people get what they don't deserve. The message of the gospel is that Jesus loves seeing me, seeing you, seeing us get what we don't deserve. We don't want what we deserve, I promise you. And if you understand that, if you understand that, and as you come to understand that more and more and more, this is why you don't need to believe the gospel once, you need to believe the gospel every day of your life as we become more and more in line with this gospel message, then when envy springs up in our hearts, and it will, your neighbor's gonna get a new car. You're gonna see somebody with something better than you. You're gonna have those feelings. And when those things show up in your heart, when we see people getting what we want, when we think we deserve those things, or even when we think they don't deserve those things, we will remember that we don't deserve what we are actually getting from Jesus. You follow me here? Jesus loves seeing people get what they don't deserve. So understanding grace in your heart is how we uproot envy. And here's why you know this is hard. You know why this is hard? Here, I'll tell you why this is hard. Thanks for asking. You know why this is hard? Because most of us don't like grace. I'll prove it, okay? Um, my daughter, Harper, she's almost eight, seven, almost eight. Uh, she's really into Legos right now. Uh, like every special occasion, it's Legos, always Legos. And listen, that's a lot of cash. Those little blocks, somebody's making a fortune on those things, okay? It's a lot of extra scratch for those little plastic blocks. They are flipping expensive. So it's just, it's Legos for everything. And now imagine with me, just imagine with me on Christmas, it's Christmas morning because we don't open presents on Christmas Eve like heathens. We wait till Jesus is born, okay? 
But imagine on Christmas morn, we are sitting around and she is ripping open one of her presents and imagine her opening a box of Legos. She shook it and she's like, it's probably a puzzle. I'm like, you're wrong. She opens it, it's Legos. I got her the gift. I'm pumped to see her open the gift. She's pumped to receive the gift. In fact, I might actually be more excited about watching her open the gift than she is about actually receiving the gift. But imagine after she rips that package open and she sees the Legos and she gets this big grin and she's so excited and then she, she sets the box down. And she, and she says, you know what? I better go clean my, my room first. I really haven't earned this. And then she runs away. Now listen, that would never happen in the history of the planet. <laughs> not, not a chance. Never in the history. But imagine with me that that did happen. I would be like, no, 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 no. No, you don't need to go do that. This is a gift. Girl, it's Christmas. Let's build it. Rip it open, let's, let's go. But what if she was like, no, no, hey, dad, you know what? Let me, just go, let me just go wash your truck, okay? Let me just go wash your truck just so that you know that I paid a part of this, that I like played a role in this. I've really not been carrying my weight around here for the last seven years. And so I just wanna like serve you back. Before we play with the Legos, let me just go scrub down the truck. And I'd have to think twice about that one because we went skiing and the truck is a mess, right? So, but no, no, absolutely not. I'd be like, Harper, you're my girl. You're my, my daughter. And I want to watch you open those things right now. I want you to play right now. Actually, I want to play with you. Let's do it. Let's get after those Legos together. Let's delight in the gift and in each other. That's why I gave you the gift. Now, my daughter would never do any of those things, right? Why? Why wouldn't she? Because kids understand gifts. They understand gifts. Undeserved. Yeah, you didn't do anything to get that. That's, that's grace. They just want to play. They just want to rip it open. If you get a thank you, it's like, write that thing down in the journal because it ain't coming for a long time, Right? Adults don't get it. We don't get it as much. Here's why, okay? When someone gives you a killer gift, what's your automatic thing that you say? Oh, you, you shouldn't have. This is too much. I can't accept this. Do you see that? That is a rejection of the foundational premise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But church, that's what's so incredible about the message of Christ. It's about grace. You've got a good dad. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. And not only that, he wants to get down on the floor and play with you. Let's rip them open now. You don't gotta go wash my truck. You don't gotta go clean your room. It's a gift. Let's play. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You just get to play. You believe in this? This is why envy is so insidious because it causes us to question the very foundation of the gospel of Jesus. Do you believe it? Because this is what Christianity is actually about. And when you understand that, you can uproot envy. 
Listen, as you're thinking to yourself, do you have envy in your heart today? It would be, it would probably be more uncommon to not than to identify that you've got some areas in your life where you're feeling like, God, what about me? Do you have that in your heart today? Here's the, the, the antidote. Think about Jesus. Jesus loves to give people what they don't deserve. Even you. Even you. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you today. What a sweet, sweet gift it is to hear these words that are many thousands of years old, to hear this story of, of the rise of one man and the, the falling of another. And while we don't relish in Saul's decline in his self-destruction, Lord, we do take that as instruction towards our own lives, our own propensities. Lord, I'm the first to admit that envy is something that I am constantly battling with. It starts so small, but it can grow so big. And it can cause us to be people we don't want to be, to do things we would never do. And Lord, I think you want us to be spared of that. So today, Jesus, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to see you, to see your life, your death, your resurrection, the gospel message that that is given to us as a gift of grace, freely given to be received by us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. You give it. And out of that, may we live as people, men and women and students who don't don't let envy rot us to the bone. Holy Spirit, we can only do this by your power. This is nothing we can white knuckle. This is nothing that we can just muster on our own. We need you, Holy Spirit, to help us in this. So give us eyes to see Jesus. Give us mouths to sing his praise. Give us hearts that are warm and awake to him today. We love you, Father. We pray this in your son's name and in the power of your Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.